God, this morning as we turn to your word, I pray that it will be all of you and none of me, and that every heart here today will be open to be transformed, that every ear will hear and every eye will see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in my college days, which were a very long time ago, I was an English major, and I loved Charles Dickens. And one of his most famous novels, A Tale of Two Cities, began with the line, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And this message series reminds me a little of that sentiment, because uh, Pastor Bob has been teaching from the book of Daniel, and really it was a time that was the worst of times for the Jewish people. They had been thoroughly vanquished and defeated by Babylon. Many of their strongest uh, young men had been hauled off to uh, serve like slaves in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Uh, their, their homeland had been lost. So it was the worst of times for the Jewish people and for many of them individually as well. And yet we've learned that because those Jewish people, at least some of them, clung to their faith in God, that even through their trials and tribulations, when they were asked to do the impossible, when they were um, pressured to conform to pagan ways, even when they were threatened with being thrown in a fiery furnace because they refused to worship King Nebuchadnezzar, they clung fast to their faith and in all things God brought them through. But today's message is a little bit different. We're going to look at how our faith can be shaken from the other side of the coin. Our shake can be, fake, uh, can be shaken when we enjoy a little too much success. And that's what we're going to take a look at today as we turn to Daniel chapter 4. Now you might recall uh, in the earlier chapters of Daniel, one of the first messages, we heard about a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had had. And none of his sorcerers or magicians could explain it or tell him what the dream was. And so he threatened them all with death. But then he met a young man who was a Jewish man named Daniel, who was able not only to tell him what the dream was, but was able to interpret it for him. Well, in chapter 4, a little bit later in the book, the king has another dream. And once again, his sorcerers and his magicians are not able to explain it. But this time, he didn't get angry and he didn't threaten anybody with death because he had learned from the first time around that Daniel was going to be able to teach and to explain what that dream meant. So the king simply called Daniel. But this presented a problem for Daniel. And the problem was this. The dream was bad news for the king. And because Daniel knew that the king was kind of a temperamental guy, he was concerned that the king might get angry. But the king, who seems, whose character seems to be changing a little bit, responds differently. So I'm going to read now from the text of Daniel chapter 4. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, let's remember, that was Daniel's Babylonian name because the king renamed the Jews. He said, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. 
It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and you rule to the ends of the earth. Then in your dream you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound by a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him, the king, the king, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my lord, the king. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. Until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. You know, as Daniel has unfolded, we've seen the king's character change just a little bit. At the beginning of the book, he was just terrible all the time. He forced young men and the Jewish people to adopt pagan customs. He made them eat his food. He gave them his own names. He threatened people with death when they couldn't do his will. But as the book unfolds, we hear him declaring things that are a little out of character for someone who was such a thoroughly evil man. You might recall that after Daniel interpreted his first dream, the king said, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And then later, after Daniel's friends survived being thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to worship a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, he said these words, There is no other God who can rescue like this. Because he looked in the furnace. Pastor Bob taught us last week, he saw not three figures, but four figures. And that fourth figure, Jesus, foreshadowed, saved the three friends from death. And after that, the king said, there is no other God who can rescue like this. And even at the beginning of the book we're studying today, chapter 4, before the king has his bad dream, he makes a proclamation that's declared all throughout the land. And this is what he said, and he was referring to our God, not his pagan gods, when he said this. He said, peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs How powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. He's starting to sound like a much better guy. A much wiser rule. But then as often happens to human beings who are enjoying wonderful success, pride got the best of him. And one day, this is what happened. Twelve months later, He was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence 
to display my majestic splendor. Now, before you judge him harshly, I invite all of us, and I'll be first in line, to look in the mirror. Because that sounds an awful lot like us. We come here on Sunday morning focused for a time on worshiping our great God, and we glorify his name. We sing praise songs, we pray, sometimes we share sacraments. We declare that God is supreme and Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And then we leave here and we revert to our worldly ways at different times during the week. We judge others harshly as though we were worthy to judge. We gossip. We force our opinions on other people like we were the all-knowing ones rather than God. Sometimes we're selfish. And sometimes it gets so bad that we act like we are the Lord of lords and the Lord of our lives when really we are neither. There's a little King Nebuchadnezzar in each of us. Like the king, we have to learn again and again that all good things, including our successes, come from God. And we just didn't earn them or deserve them or build them with our own two hands without a whole lot of help from heaven. I want to to remind you what it was that King Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, by my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic power. My majestic power, not God's. And what happened in that instant? The dream was fulfilled. The king was taken out of leadership. He lost his mind. He went into the forest and the wilderness, away from human society, like an outcast. The scripture tells us he ate grass like a cow and grew his nails grew into talons like a bird. God reduced him to a beast of the field rather than a human being. God left him that way for seven periods of time, seven years. But then... God gave Nebuchadnezzar a chance to be restored and redeemed. And this is how uh, he describes that scene. Nebuchadnezzar is saying these words. After this time had passed, he's talking about the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. I acknowledged heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. Wouldn't it be just great if we could remember those words and that sentiment every single day, not just in the worst of times, but in the best of times? The lesson here is obvious. Pride goeth before the fall. We know this. We learn this even as, as youngsters. And that's what happened to the king. We create some of our own trials and tribulations through our pride and our arrogance. And then it's so extraordinarily painful when we get taken down a peg or two. You know, every other message in this series has been about our faith becoming more unshakable during times of trial. 
but our faith can be shaken or can become more unshakable depending on how we react to times of success. If we decide to believe that we deserve all of our achievements, that we've earned them through our own efforts, that we're pretty smart and our good education and our skilled hands have given us everything we have and we forget that those things come from God, friends, I'm here to tell you because I've learned this the hard way myself, pride goes before the fall. You know, when I look back on my own life, I realize that uh, I experienced some times when I thought I was really, really successful, especially when I worked in the courthouse and I was the little queen over one of the floors of the courthouse. But what I have learned in the years since I left that place, a place that you allowed me to have for a short time, that God allowed me to have for a short time, I've learned that being a loving and good wife being a pastor who has to struggle every day to be humble, it doesn't come naturally. That's much more. That, that, when I'm laying on my deathbed ready to take my last breath, if I think back on my life, I'm pretty sure the time I'm going to think of as the most successful is the time I've spent here with you. Not the time in the courthouse. There may be some other times in the future, but they won't be courthouse kind of successes and we all need to remember that you know it's it's really tough it's really tough to learn this lesson because we almost always have to learn it the hard way and that's how the king learned it but he came to recognize something very important and this is how he described the lesson he learned at the moment my reason returned to me My honor and splendor came back to me for the glory of my kingdom. My associates and my princes wanted to be with me again because I was more tolerable to be around. Not only was I reinstated over my kingdom, I received more power than ever before. I received, not I grabbed. I received, not I earned. I received, not I achieved. Maybe this time he was really a changed man. You know, part of our problem is that we don't define success the right way. We don't define success the way Jesus would probably define it if he was here talking to us. But fortunately for us, we have his word in the scripture. And one of the greatest places to turn to in scripture to learn about what Jesus would likely view as a successful life is the Beatitudes in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus described a people who would inherit the kingdom, who would be comforted, who would be shown mercy, who would see the face of God, who would become righteous. These were not rich rulers. These were not wealthy athletes who could throw touchdowns. These were not movie stars. But that would be a pretty successful life, don't you think? If you lived a life that in the end allowed you to inherit the kingdom, if through that life you were shown mercy and comfort, if in that life you became more righteous, if in that life you had the chance to see the face of God in the faces of fellow believers, That would be a successful life. And who were those people? 
that Jesus was describing would get those things? They were the poor in spirit. They were those who mourn. They were those who were peacemakers, who were merciful, who thirsted after righteousness, and who were persecuted for Jesus' name. That is success. And there's another example in Scripture, and we should be familiar with this fellow because our church is named after him. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always called Paul for a time. He was Saul, the Pharisee, pretty well-to-do, incredibly well-educated, horribly arrogant, and one of the worst persecutors of Christ followers who lived when the church was first being born. But he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after that encounter, his name was changed to Paul. And he became what we could probably say was the best church planter who ever lived. He planted churches all through the Middle East and the Mediterranean. But he spent a whole lot of time doing his best preaching through letters that he wrote while he was chained, chained in prison in Rome. And the letters that he wrote from, from this prison were the letters of a man who is no longer powerful or successful by the world's standards. He was chained. He was beaten. Sometimes his audience to whom he preached the gospel was only a few guards. And yet when he wrote the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians, he had something very interesting to say. He asked them to pray for him. He didn't ask to pray to be released from prison because he realized he was doing God's work in prison. He didn't ask to have a larger audience to preach to. He asked that the words he spoke concerning the gospel would be correct and that they would cause other people, Gentile people, to know Jesus. And then he gave some advice to the people to whom he was writing. And this is what he said. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Now there's a definition of success. Pray to God to provide what's needed. Have a thankful heart. Be honored to share the gospel message with all people from a position of humility as Paul was doing in chains. Live wisely among non-believers, not judge harshly non-believers. Speak and share graciousness, not judgment, so they can see in you the face and the love of Jesus Christ. That's success, the scripture way. Who was the greater success? The Apostle Paul or King Nebuchadnezzar?
for a time, both of them were very arrogant. I suspect Paul came a lot further along than had King Nebuchadnezzar. But we saw in glimpses of the king, we saw glimpses of ourselves. And we can also see glimpses of ourselves in the Apostle Paul's final humility, final posture of prayer, final loss of pride. You know, but if we, we think back about King Nebuchadnezzar, we need to remember he wasn't all bad or all good. On one hand, he said, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries. And on the other hand, he said, By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic power. And we do exactly the same thing. We have on one hand days and on other hand days. But after this testing, after this testing, he proclaimed, not only was I reinstated over my kingdom, I received more power than ever before. Sometimes he credited himself like us. Sometimes he credited God like us. Sometimes he was humble like us. Sometimes he was arrogant like us. Sometimes he acted like he was the Lord of Lords and ruled others with an iron fist. And sometimes we're the same way. But you know, he seemed to have learned a lesson that another ruler on another day didn't learn. I'm speaking of a man called Pontius Pilate. We read about him on Good Friday. He's a man who didn't really want to give in to the Jews' demand that Jesus be crucified. But in John chapter 19, if you read the story, there was a point where Jesus was brought inside, away from the crowd, and Pilate was asking him questions, and Jesus wasn't responding to Pilate. And this is how their conversation went. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? And then in an incredible, amazing response, an act of faithful submission to God, not Pilate, Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. He could have saved himself that day, but he didn't. He decided instead that it was more important to save you and me. The cross was a humiliating experience, and the world would not call it a success, but it was the greatest success achieved by anyone anywhere ever and we benefit from that so today as we come to an end of this time of teaching I have to ask you this when you experience the best of times 
or the worst of times, how will you respond?